This is the passage where the whole title, this elegantly, cleverly labeled moniker that I've given for our sermon series, Give Them Heaven, the coolest title ever, gets its origin because the Apostle Paul reminds these Philippians that they are indeed heaveninians. This is a name I've come up with by listening to a song from the Flight of the Concords. And I won't say any more than that. But he says that our citizenship, he tells the Philippians, that those who are united to Christ, who are looking forward to a day when the emperor, the true emperor, not Caesar, not Barack Obama, not Kofi Annan, the true emperor will come from the heavens to transform everything that's dilapidated and broken and in a massive state of disrepair. That we, he says, have a citizenry and the commonwealth of heaven. We're heaveninians. And he's helping us. He's helping us as we listen to his words to the Philippians to make sure that we don't lose sight of where we're from and what we're for and where we're headed. In a way, he's asking for them not to lose their accent. He says, join with others, brothers, in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. There is this pattern that he's talking about. And he says, though, that some don't walk in this pattern, they walk as enemies of Christ. One of the things that he's warning against, one of the things that can happen as we think about this in our own time, is really well depicted in my own personal life. When I was about 12 years old, I just turned 12, I entered... Junior school, I entered seventh grade, two months in, seven, to, 12, to age 12. And I realized that I talked like this. I had never known I talked like this before because my daddy never told me. And everybody else around me talked like this too. And so when I suddenly got around a bunch of people that wasn't talking like this, I felt like a freak. And so... I realized something had to give here because my melodious East Tennessee hick scent, I just made that word up, I like it, it wasn't working too good. It made me feel, and you don't need any help with this when you're a teenager anyway, extra self-conscious. And so I reckoned that I had to become like a newscaster who sounds like they are perfectly from nowhere. And I dropped the accent. And I adopted a new way of speaking consciously. I'm not proud of this. But I did it. Because I thought this was the way I can assimilate into this community. Into this world that I'm now inhabiting. I don't want to be a little off kilter. I want to be like them. So I need to drop the parts of me that don't fit. The apostle... I think would say an enemy of the cross of Christ can find themselves easily when they're drinking a certain kind of water all the time and they're listening to a certain kind of speech all the time and they're breathing in a certain kind of cultural air all the time, they can start to kind of lose their heavenly accent, their heaveninian way of speech. 
their way of action that should, in many ways, sound kind of ridiculous to people. It can get wearisome and tired. You don't want people to look at you and think you're a freak. It feels better sometimes to just kind of fit in. And if you're going to be a freak, you want to be a freak on your own terms. You want to be a cool freak. Not a Jesus-y one. And so he is urging, look, I have set before you a pattern. I'm trying to follow it. The pattern he's laid out in Philippians 2, we've talked about it. It involves considering other people better than yourselves. It involves letting the interest of other people and the interest of Jesus precede and overpower your own interests for yourself. It involves, like Jesus, when you get up in the morning, not making it your primary goal to say, what am I going to get out of this day? But how can I give myself to God today and to his world? How can I love God and love neighbor? How can I not consider equality with God something to be grasped? How can I, when I'm putting on my pants, put on Christ, when I'm donning my wardrobe, can I put on the attitude of Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing? Thinking that God's intention was much more important than his own. And the apostles suggesting that if you find people who are following that pattern, you should watch them and you should mimic them. And he's holding himself up that way. And then he says this, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Which sounds kind of awful, doesn't it? Not many people would walk around and say, I am an enemy of the cross of Christ. Nor would many people say, I am spawn of Satan. I don't think. There's a, there's, there's a few kind of people that you don't want to hang out with, especially after hours, who might say that. But the apostles, just following Jesus' lead, and he kind of cuts things down to size in a way that we don't always feel comfortable with. You know, Jesus, for instance, would say, either the devil is your daddy or God is. Yikes. So you could have the devil as your daddy and not realize it. In other words, you could be under his sway, under his authority, and his best method sometimes is for you just not to realize it. Jesus says that either you're for me or you're against me. So if you're not embracing Jesus and following the pattern, then you are an enemy of his and an enemy of his work, even though you may never give him the time of day. You may not even think of it. There are lots of enemies that never even think of Jesus, and if you ask what they thought of Jesus, they say, he's a really swell guy, groovy beard, he's so kind and loving. I love that hippie man. But he says these are the issues that confront a person who is an enemy of the cross. And it would be something, a kind of mirror for us to look in and say, are we accidentally refusing to embrace a friendship with the cross and all that that stands for? Or... Are we trying, are we seeking, are we aspiring to follow this pattern that God has given us that will help us become his one-of-a-kind commonwealth? So he says, here's how you can tell. Here's what an enemy of the cross of Christ does. Well, here's what they await. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their belly. 
Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is fixed or set on earthly things. So one thing you could say here, let's start with the middle. Their God is their belly. Now I realize that I am talking about this as a person who is a man who looks pregnant. And so there are all kinds of reasons I might want to justify what this may mean and what it may not mean. But I'll try not to do that. Instead, I'll tell you a story. From the time I was six years old, maybe earlier, I knew I wanted pizza. I didn't choose to be hungry. I just was. I've been hungry my whole life, literally. Maybe I'm just eating to stuff my feelings. Yeah, and I've stuffed a lot of feelings, I suppose. But I also am just physically hungry all the time. And I want, you know what I want? I want somebody to tell me, you can't help it. You were just born hungry. You, there's, if you're born hungry, then you must eat and eat and eat. I want and like if a doctor can say, as I read in a book not too long ago, when his medical students say, people who are overweight, they just lack self-control. And he says, okay, let me tell you what. Don't eat for the next 24 hours. And then come back to class and tell me what it's like. And they come back to class. And they say, how'd you do? He, the professor asked him, how'd you do? They say, we couldn't make it, man. I felt awful. I was starving all the time. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't sleep. I had to eat. I gave in. He said, that's what, that's what some people feel like all the time. They're hungry. And I said, yeah, I can't help it. I'm just hungry. And the doctor said it was okay. He medicalized my affliction, my inappropriate relationships with another lover. Pizza and Santitos. Voluminous amounts of shredded cheese. But see, I don't think that Paul is merely, I'm throwing this out to say, do you know that we're in a moment here where we have come and theologians would call this our anthropology. We have come to believe about people that if they want something, that they would be disingenuous, disingenuous and they would be causing themselves self-harm not to obey those desires. It would be impossible for most modern people to think that they could have a desire, strong, compelling, overarching desire in their life, and that they shouldn't obey it. In fact, to suppress it or to disobey it would be a kind of living a lie, they would say. Christianity, on the other hand, has always said, that is wrong. Now, you can disagree with Christianity, but Christianity has always said, it doesn't matter how you're born, you're born defective. That's why Jesus Christ had to come be a man. He had to become a person because people were fouled up. They were composed of nothing but God allergies and afflictions and unruly desires that they weren't free of. They were free to do whatever they want, but they weren't free not to do what they wanted. They had to do things, and they couldn't please God on their own. So Jesus had to come into the world as a perfect man who struggled and suffered more than anyone. He suffered and was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, which means that dude, have you ever wanted something badly and not given into it? The easiest way to make a temptation go away is to give into it. 
Do you want some free advice? You already know this. You learned it when you were six months old. If you want something really badly, and you want the temptation of that thing to go away, then get it. And it'll go away. But if you don't give in to the temptation, you suffer. It's, you feel like you're going to die. And Jesus' whole life was that kind of suffering. He did not give in to temptation ever. So he suffered in obedience way more than you or I ever has any idea about. The apostle says the enemies of the cross of Christ, what happens is God gets really, really tiny in their lives. But their own desires, their own appetites. I don't think he's talking about just food. When he says their God is their belly, I think he's talking about the center of who they are. The appetites that drive them become the main thing for them. Whatever I want, whatever I need, whatever I feel is the single most important thing on the planet earth and I've got to get it and it's more important than what God wants and it's more important than what anybody else wants. It's preeminent. My desires are ultimate. You are drinking a water that tells you that that's the way to think of it. And Paul says that's being an enemy of the cross. Because if all your desires and all your appetites are good, then why did the cross have to happen? The cross is God saying, sin is worse than you imagine. Being in revolt against God and obeying yourself is a dreadful domestic policy. It is going to ruin yourself and ruin your family and ruin the planet Earth. And so I will let myself be ruined so that a flourishing can happen. It's his pronouncement of his wrath. On sin, which he thinks is a way bigger deal than any of us do. And so the apostle says, if you're going to be an enemy of the cross, what you're going to do is yourself is going to get huge. Your desires, your wishes are going to be gigantic. And God's going to be really, really small. Your desires are going to be preeminent. And God, if he is involved in your life, he will exist to fit and conform to what you want. Your God is your belly. See, all kinds of idolatry involve getting control of a God so that we can make him do what we want him to do. As if God is a celestial Siri. You press a button, and you just tell God what you want, and he bends and shapes the universe so that it fits into your tiny little self. Their God is their stomach. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you were born wanting. There are things about you. If they run counter to what God wants for you, they are not good for you. And Jesus aims to change them if you will let him. If you'll offer yourself to him. As He is meant to be your God, not your appetites and your desires. And so long as you are looking for someone to medicalize your infirmities and say, this is purely just biological, then you, in a way, become an enemy of the cross. Some things are purely biological, but few things are rarely fully that. We have things in us that must be killed. Look sometimes if you like all the internet listicles that happen. What a terrible word. 
listicles, four ways to improve your concentration, six exercises to, you know, to raise your glutes, whatever. Can you tell I just made that up on the spot? You are bombarded with listicles. Look at some of the listicles that the Apostle Paul has in the New Testament. When he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Like that part of you which is opposed to God, your sexual immorality, your greed, like your money sicknesses, your anger, your malice, your envy. The things that make you think you're in competition with the world and that you've got to win and they all got to lose. He says, put them to death, not coddle them, not engage them, bludgeon them with a sledgehammer. That's what he says. To not do that is to become an enemy of the cross, is to deny what it's for and deny its power. He says, the other thing that they do is they glory in their shame. And this is probably a reference to sexual deviancies, sexual excesses. See, probably there was a group of people, but we don't know for sure, but it certainly happened in the Corinthian church that said, we are spiritual. We're not religious, we're spiritual. We have arrived. So it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. It matters what we do with our spirits. And Paul's theological answer to that is, that's poppycock. That's ridiculous. What are you talking about? Of course what you do with your body matters for your spiritual life. And of course what you do for your spiritual life matters for your body. You're connected. Your Lord is embodied. And your body was made for the Lord. Not for sexual immorality. But in a broader sense, he says your glory is in your shame. They glory in their shame. They boast about things. They celebrate things that they ought to be blushing about. One of my favorite G.K. Chesterton quotes is where he says, Do not be proud of the fact that there are things in your life that you're totally comfortable with that your grandma would have been appalled at. You might think, Oh, grandma, she's so old-fashioned. She, have you ever watched a movie with grandma? And he's, oh, Grandma, she's so fast. She, she gets so uptight about such ridiculous things, all these social moral mores, all these things. He says, you might say she's just being nervous, but it may be that your grandmother is an extremely lively, vital animal and that you yourself are a paralytic. In other words, the problem may not be her. If you can do things and practice things that people of a previous generation thought were abysmal, if you refuse to, if you celebrate something, you applaud loudly at things that are happening that previous generations thought were abominable, that might be a sign, not that you've progressed, but that you've digressed drastically. But who knows? But Paul says they glory in their shame and their end is destruction. Which is a polite way to end something, isn't it? Their end is destruction. And here's their problem. Their mind is fixed on earthly things. See, God's gotten so small. And they're only thinking about this life. And therefore, God's not in the picture. 
and they think in a way like in this show I saw when I was a younger fellow called Kids in the Hall. There, were, there was this game they would play, and they would be back from a distance, and they would say, I'm smashing your head to see if you squint your eyes and get at a distance. You can actually, with your fingertips, smash another human being's head. You can try. You can smash the preacher's head if you want. Just squint your eyes, kids. Come on. But just from a... Thank you, Jeannie. Does it work? Can you, your, your hand's too close to your eye. You but from the right perspective, you can make another person seem really, really small. When your mind is merely on earthly things, when you think of your citizenship or your identity as merely a Tennessean or a Georgian or an American, and merely that, or merely your identity is just who you're a part of or what family you're in or what job you do, and you don't think of yourself more broadly as part of a world that Jesus Christ has breathed into existence and is actively redeeming and you're one with him, it's kind of like trying to squish God's head. You've ruled him out of the picture in your own mind. It doesn't mean he's not there. Just because I say I'm smashing Clint's head and his daughter's. <laughs> that doesn't mean I did. And just because you think you're rooting God out of the picture, as so many people do, doesn't mean you are. He's still there. And Paul's saying, that's why you've got to live according to this pattern. And he says all this stuff not with glee, but with tears. I say again, even with tears, that there are people who live as enemies of the cross. In other words, there are people who refuse the generosity of God. There are people who look at God saying, you are so sick with an ailment that you can't do anything about, I'm going to have to come in and I'm going to have to get punished for your rebellion so that you can become friends of mine. And people say, I don't want that. And it makes Paul weep. That also is a pattern to be followed. Are you in danger of losing your accent? of following your own appetites merely, of making yourself big and God small, glorying in things that are shameful, listening to your own voice and not God's. Well, I'll close with this. The apostle's words can lend themselves to this great clip I saw in, on ER. Now, I like to think ER just went off the air like a year ago, but I think it's probably been 20 years ago now. But there's this great scene where a man is in a bed, a hospital bed, and he's dying of cancer. And he's hooked up, and he's, he's troubled. He's a doctor. He had given lethal injection for the state to a prisoner. And he tried doing it the first time, but it didn't work, and he kept at it until finally he did give the lethal injection. And afterwards, he found out that the man had been framed and that he had, in his mind, murdered an innocent man. He's now looking at the prospect of his own death. And a chaplain from the hospital comes in to talk to him, this young woman. And he says, I just feel so guilty. And she says, well, maybe you need another approach. Maybe, maybe your guilt has just been your reason for living. Maybe you need another reason to live. And he says, I don't, I don't want another reason. I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I've had it. I've got cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that's holding me back is that I'm afraid. What's going to happen to me next? And she says, well, what do you think is going to happen to you next? And he says, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? 
cosmic place. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? And she says, I think it's up to each of us to interpret what God wants. And he says, so you mean people can do anything? They can rape or kill or steal in the name of God and it's all fine? And she says, that's not what I'm saying. What are you saying then? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all stuff. And I don't have time for that now. And she says, I understand. No, you don't understand, the man says. You don't understand. How could you possibly say that? Now you listen to me. I need a real chaplain who believes in a real God, who believes in a real hell. (laughs) And she answers, in her best counselor voice, I hear that you're frustrated, (laughs) but you need to ask yourself. No, I don't need to ask myself, he says. I need answers, and all your questions and all your uncertainty are only making matters worse. And she says, I know you're upset. And he says, God, I need someone who will look me in the eye And tell me how to find forgiveness because I'm running out of time. I need a real chaplain who believes in a real God, who believes in real hell. I need someone who can look me in the eye and tell me how to get forgiveness. Because I'm running out of time. Heaven and ends. As citizens of heaven, aspiring to be friends of the cross who have been acted upon by God, you are the real chaplains to the world who have a real God, who know that there is a real end coming of judgment. But for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, who has taken judgment for them, they look forward to the emperor's return where he is going to transform our lowly bodies. These desires that seem to eat our lunch that we can't change, and we have to say, Lord, have mercy on me. I've failed again. He will finally transform us so that we will be fully and completely like him. You're the real chaplains. You've got the real God who can avert real wrath by a very real Savior. Citizens of heaven, believe these things. Don't lose your accent. Go out into the world and show them where to find forgiveness. Because their time is running out. Let's pray.